Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A looming general election, a party on the verge of a historic landslide, a leader with an iron-like grip on message discipline, waging war on complacency. Sound familiar? A new dawn has broken, has it not? Education, education and education. Tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. A politics of courage and honesty and trust. Welcome to Lessons in a Landslide, an exclusive Red Box podcast series to mark 20 years since New Labour swept to power. In interviews with all of the key players in the 1997 campaign, recorded before Theresa May triggered her snap election, we discuss life on the political front line and the -the behind-the-scenes battles between Labour's big beasts. In this episode, I speak to Peter Mandelson, the dark prince of spin, and he discusses the moment he coined New Labour, why John Prescott was always feeling left out, and how some Blairites have still not forgiven him for going back to save Gordon Brown's premiership. For ten years or more, I think, I've been (laughs) waiting for this moment, Uh, but there's still six weeks, very hard work to do, and as John Prescott has already said, we are not complacent. We're going to earn every single vote we get on polling day on May the 1st. Peter Manson, you've been called a lot of things um, down the years. I wanted to start with one of your earliest and probably most enduring nicknames, the, the Prince of Darkness. How did, that, how did that come about? That was preceded. That was 1990s vintage. That was Claire <laughs> Short uh, you know, railing against these people who operate and work in the dark. She was thinking <laughs> of me and Alistair and other people. Uh, and from that came the Prince of Darkness, now superseded by what I'm called now, which is the Dark Lord. The Dark Lord, of course. (laughs) Um, But this was preceded in the 1980s, at the time of the 1987 general election, because remember, 97 was the second campaign that I did. The first was 87. And there uh, I was 
famously profiled, I think for the first time in my life, in a national newspaper, in The Observer, by its then political editor Robert Harris. And his piece was headlined, Machiavelli comes to Woolworth Road. Oh, of course. Machiavelli, I forgot about that. So, the Prince of Darkness you know, <laughs> was a sort of follow-on. <laughs> and then, looking back through some of the cuttings uh, related to the early 90s and the Blair leadership, Bobby was another one. That so, was 93. So why were you called? Four. Why were you called Bobby? That was during the leadership election of Tony uh, in '94 uh, after John Smith's death, and uh, the, his campaign, his leadership campaign, had a campaign committee, and it had two chairs. One was Jack Straw, and the other was Mo Molum. And um, it, it was a real committee, but it wasn't the organisation of Tony's leadership bid. Um, and that was done, you know, by a parallel uh, team of people, uh, uh, of whom I was the, I don't know what, leader, convener, uh, moderator. <laughs> um, and we had to keep the existence of the, as it were, the real campaign, uh, separate from the official campaign. <laughs> Uh, the official campaign, as you can imagine, was a very ecumenical uh, body. Um, the, the real campaign was rather more close-knit and hard-nosed, uh, and you know we would meet first thing in the morning and then reconvene during the course of the day. And it was thought better for the knowledge of the real campaign um, uh, to be kept hidden in the dark. In okay. the dark, in Claire Short's uh, words. <laughs> There was a great team spirit um, during it. Some wise, clever dick in the campaign thought it would be a good idea uh, if um, I, I was referred to with a pseudonym. I mean, it was more a joke, it wasn't serious. <laughs> uh, and that became Bobby uh, to Tony's Jack. And Bobby even got a name checking. Well, what happened was, I mean, this was speech. a joke. Yes, it was a joke. Yeah, it yeah. was a meant to be. <laughs> anyway, so when Tony went, was a duly elected leader of the Labour Party, and he went to Church House and celebrated and made a speech to his supporters thanking them. I wasn't even there at the time. I was doing something else. I can't remember what now. Uh, but in the course of it, you know, amongst the people he thanked was Bobby. Um, and a very uh, clever, well-connected BBC lobby journalist, um, uh, Nick Jones, uh, he spotted this, asked somebody, well, who's Bobby? And he was told, just routinely, and it didn't <laughs> seem to matter anymore. Uh, and uh, he, he went to town, <laughs> <laughs> as Nick would. As, as, as lobby journalists do, as lobby do journalists sometimes. Do. And so from the, from the moment that Tony became leader, were you essentially on a sort of campaign war footing then, looking ahead to whenever John Major called the election? Yes, uh, sort of. Uh, I mean, first of all, we had to build the team. Mm. I mean, the people who would work for Tony, chief of staff, the communications, the policy, uh, etc. Uh, and that was the first task, and it preoccupied us that weekend and for a few days more into the following week. Uh, and by the end of that, first week, you know, the top team had been assembled, they'd been recruited. From then on, we were on a, 
certainly on sort of military manoeuvres, I mean, first of all, we had to establish what Tony was going to do and say and how he wanted to frame him and define his leadership and how he, he wanted to be understood by people. That had been established during the course of the leadership campaign in a series of six, I think it was, keynote speeches uh, into which an enormous amount of work went, both in their conceptualizing, their writing uh, and their presentation. I remember each speech uh, needed to have three headlines uh, at the top, three sort of statements encapsulating the content and then there would be a two-page summary of the speech for you know, lazier people who couldn't be bothered <laughs> to read the whole thing. And those three top headlines encapsulating the two pages uh, summarizing uh, the content in all the sort of half a dozen key policy areas you know, became you know, his handbook, it became his platform. Uh, and then we set about seeing what changes, what initiatives, what further speeches, what hirings, what firings. Um, the first of which, I think, if I remember rightly, uh, was on education and schools because the party was due to launch uh, some sort of policy document, some sort of white paper, um, I think a week or two after Tony became leader. Uh, and he said, let's not postpone it, let's do it, let's carry on with it, uh, I'll be there, I'll launch it, to a rather surprised and discombobulated education team, because of course he launched it with his own rather distinctive stamp uh, and outlook on education, uh, and the reforms began there and then, I mean like within ten days of his arriving in the leadership. Uh, and the rest of the time, yes of course we were preparing uh, for the election, this was 94. Um, uh, it, it could have come in the following two years. In fact, it waited until 97. Um, I was dispatched initially uh, to the Whip's office because he said, Tony decided straight away that, you know, all junior, you know, backbenchers uh, like me, because I was a member of parliament by then yeah. in 92 should, before they moved on to the front bench, serve a time in the Whip's office. Whip's office, slightly horrified to receive me <laughs> uh, in their ranks, uh, didn't actually give me a job or any responsibilities. I think I was designated as the campaigning Whip and kept as far away from the main work of the Whip's office. They regarded me as a spy, I think, for the leader. Um, was there any truth in that? There was not oh, okay. any truth in that. And Tony had his own people in the Whip's office. It was fine, and the Whip's office, in any case, changed yeah. uh, soon after. Um, uh, but really, from the word go, it was assumed by Tony that I would do in 97 what I had done in 87. Uh, and that, of course, is, in effect, what I did. Run, run the election campaign? Yeah. And so where did New Labour come from? At various times, you, it's been described to you as being your idea, the, 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 the literal name. No, like a lot of these things, it came from a number of people, not one. Yeah. Um, but as is often the case, uh, I, I was the person who was most instrumental in making sure a decision was taken as to whether it was used. Yeah. I remember uh, the, uh, a journey. Um, going into work 
to Westminster one morning and this issue of new labour and the new sort of nomenclature came to a head uh, and there were those who wanted it, people like Philip Gould and others who strongly promoted it, uh, Peter Hyman I think also, but a number of people in the office and then there were others uh, at party headquarters who didn't want it uh, and lobbied me strongly and explained why it would be such a bad idea um, and uh, uh, I, I took a view um, in a way that I do on all these things, big or small, mainly small. You know, you hear different views, um, you weigh them up in your mind, and then you t form a judgment, and you take a decision. And the decision I took on that occasion, because it was the final day, everything had to be branded, printed, uh, yeah. and sent off for the party conference. This was the summer. Um, uh, 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 and I went to Tony and said, look, uh, there is this difference of opinion over new labour. Some people say this, some people say that. I think we should use it. I think we should use it in the following way. Uh, the people who support that view are X, Y and Z. And Tony said, fine, that's what we'll do. I was always clear in the advice I gave. He was always decisive uh, in the conclusions he reached. At that time, did it feel like it was a permanent thing that we'd still be talking about as a sort of no, political philosophy or was it just really. something to, something for the party conference season? No, it was something for the party conference season but then of course ten years before um, uh, in 1986 I had introduced the Red Rose yeah, of course, uh, yeah. on Neil Kinnock's behalf because uh, he wanted no more red flag, he wanted a Red Rose and the way I got that through the National Executive Committee to say, oh, this is just a campaigning logo to be used at the party conference, you know, and then for the autumn. And when they got to the party conference, of course, they saw the entire Winter Gardens in Blackpool. <laughs> uh, the presentation completely transformed. I mean, never ha ha was the like of uh, this seen in the Labour Party before. It was so modern, so majestic, so definitive. And there was a pistachio-coloured backdrop which swept across the back of the Winter Gardens uh, with labour, one word, labour and the rose. And people, I think, got the message that that, was, that had arrived, it was here to stay. <laughs> um, and that was now uh, our, our signature visual identity. And the same happened with New Labour. Uh, it was New Labour, New Britain. Um, it was a whole new visual identity. Philip and others who were working for us uh, and the indefatigable uh, Jackie Stacey, uh, who by that time had become the party's director of presentation. I had found her and promoted her, I think, way back in 1985 uh, in the campaigns unit at Walworth Road. Uh, and people like her and others just became Margaret McDonough and yeah. Carol Lindforth and you know a whole number of others. Um, they just became you know the the you know the NCOs of all this. Uh, and when you said to Jackie Stacey, "We're going with New Labour, New Britain," uh, that that was it. You know, you were, it happened. You were pulling a lever, yeah. pressing a button. <laughs> and my God, did it happen uh, with a vengeance? Yeah. I mean, that was the sort of machine. Uh, we had, we were building, and those are the sort of people they were. Um, you know, they liked, 
taking orders. They like the orders to come in time uh, and not to be reversed. And my job was to make sure that orders came on time, were absolutely clear, and then were not reversed. How, um, presumably one of the things was at that point, it was exciting and new, and it was, a, a you know, people like being part of a relaunch. And a, of course. Um, Look, and a people mood think, of optimism. People think that the Labour Party, you know, was shocked uh, by all this. They were completely relieved to see the sheer professionalism the confidence, the conviction, the esprit de corps, the way in which we were suddenly presenting ourselves. Yeah. You know, the Labour Party is an army of foot soldiers. You know, they're people who want to win. They want to have confidence in their generals. They want to be thrown into battle. They want to know that there's a clear battle plan. Uh, and they don't want to uh, have people sort of wobbling around on parade. You know, they want to be set forth in a direction. And just as 10 years before, people had said to me, you know, the Red Rose, oh my God, there's going to be a backlash, the party will rebel. I remember taking in, just before the party, the conference opened with the Red Rose, by the way, uh, a salmon-coloured cardboard document wallet with a same Labour and the Rose logo on it. And Glenis Kinnock saw it. And she said, Peter, she said, and she looked quite ashen. I just don't think that the delegates of the National Union of Mine Workers are going to go around carrying this in their hand at the party conference. <laughs> uh, uh, not a salmon pink. Uh, you know, it, it looks like a sort of fashion accessory. And of course, the moment it hit the decks at uh, the party conference in Blackpool, you couldn't, you, I mean, you couldn't get any more for love nor money. They were exchanging hands, they were <laughs> borrowed, stolen, begged. People offered money for more of these conference wallets. And so it was the same 10 years later uh, with New Labour and New Britain. People absolutely loved it. It was so confident. What sticks in your mind once the uh, 97 campaign sort of got underway? What, what what were your sort of the bits that you thought went really well or you know something that you pulled off that was different or what was different what did you do that you made made you think this is you know we're putting our stamp on things it adopted the same model of 87 but on stilts <laughs> i mean 87 was a very glitzy razzmatazz glossy red rose festooned uh election campaign uh, which of course was supercharged by Neil Kinnock's oratory yeah. during the campaign and reached a new height in communication with Hugh Hudson's film the party election Kinnock broadcast. the movie yeah. Kinnock the movie Te fast forward 10 years I would say the professionalism the content um, the, the presentation the politics, the policy making, the message, because bear in mind that 10 years before we'd had the presentation but not the policies. Uh, in 1997 uh, we had both the policies and the presentation and both uh, uh, indispensable. Um, uh, uh, I, I ha have described the 87 election as a spray-on election campaign. Um, you know, the outer wrapping, the packaging uh, was great, indeed so great that 
despite our uh, loss, uh, Private Eye described the 1987 campaign as Labour's brilliant election defeat. Ninety-seven, <laughs> uh, you had everything in place, yep. not just the presentation and the communications and the marketing, but you had the politics and the policies and you had the personalities of people like Blair and Brown and, and you know, Robin Cook and, you know, all the others who, uh, you know, were a formidable uh, team. And you had absolutely everything falling into place uh, around them in that campaign. We gave the public absolutely no alternative but to vote Labour. There were no get-out clauses, you know, no pretext, no excuses <laughs> anymore. Perhaps we over-reassured people, um, but we just just didn't want to take any risks in 97. We'd had opposition absolutely up to here. Uh, we couldn't take another year of it. Uh, people had expected to win in 92 and had been greatly disappointed. We weren't going to allow anything to go wrong in 97 and we literally fired on all cylinders from the beginning to end. On the subject of the personalities, one of the striking things looking back and reading some of the memoirs and that sort of thing is actually during the campaign there was a lot of big beasts who behind the scenes sometimes didn't always get on. But actually that, we didn't... Give me some examples. People like John Prescott feeling he was being left out or, oh, yes. you know, but that was a personalities clashing up. That was a constant refrain from John. <laughs> was he being left out or was that just his over-sensitive personality? I think we'll draw a veil. <laughs> Very good. But what I was going to say was that actually the part, maybe part of the way, the way the reason the campaign came can together. I, can was I just say about John? It's not as if he was being left out. Everyone had their skills. Everyone had their sort of unique selling point. Something, some gap that they would fill in the contribution they made to, ca to the campaign. And John was one of them. You know, was John best suited and best qualified to be? you know, part of the sort of central strategic command? No. But did he do an enormous lot else, uh, you know, to bring uh, ballast to the campaign, to bolster it, and to, you know, reach parts of the body that perhaps, you know, others didn't? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the uh, things that comes across again and again and again is the message against complacency. The Ooh, terrified of losing again. Yeah. That even when, you know, you were on over 50% in the polls or... Yeah, but that was Tony. I mean, Tony couldn't, didn't dare think we might win, certainly not with that sort of majority, because uh, he thought that, sort of, as you say, complacency might creep in and we might have, shockingly yet again, uh, defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. It, what I, I was also like that. You, you were I, the same. Well, I'm a warrior. Yeah. I mean, I'm a warrior and a warrior. <laughs> um, and I worry all the time about things. It's a nervous habit I have. Yeah. Um, but only through worrying do you get results or do you get anything approaching uh, perfection. And others were like that. They were perfectionists. Philip Gould, Alistair Campbell, David Miliband, Angie Hunter, Margaret MacDonald, all these sort of people, they were amazing. Uh, they're perfectionists, yeah. and we would tease things out the whole time amongst us, you know. I mean, it was like a continuous argument, or at least conversation, 
Yeah, at the at the end of which, you know, we would reach conclusions, decisions would be taken, we wouldn't go back on them, but then if they didn't quite work as we expected, we'd revisit them and keep discussing them and refining them. And what about the dynamic between Tony and Gordon during the campaign? I mean, obviously we know much more about what happened later on when they were in government, but was that a no, good happened, relation? No, no, it happened ship. right from the beginning. Right. I mean, it, people would laugh at it now. <laughs> but when John Major uh, fired the starting pistol uh, for the campaign, uh, Gordon had just resolutely refused to sign off any of the campaign plans, the grid, uh, the election broadcasts or anything, because for whatever reason uh, he thought it was, you know, being done by Tony's people, um, notably me, um, and uh, it, 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 there was a sort of continue, he was in a sort of continuous state of protest um, <laughs> and wouldn't talk to us about it, wouldn't talk to Alistair and wouldn't talk to others. Alistair, I remember, was absolutely desperate for an economic plan, a plan to present our economic policies. Particularly because that was one of and Labour's he, weaknesses at the he, time. Uh, of course, well it yeah. had been originally, yeah. yes, uh, but actually the economics uh, had been recast chiefly, but not only, but chiefly by Gordon. Yeah. So he had a great story to tell and he great, had great arguments to make. A lot of the deficit, the damage of Labour's economic policy and messaging had been repaired by him by this uh, stage. But could you get him to put it down on a sort of single piece of paper? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't know why. Perhaps he thought it would leak, or perhaps he thought there were still unresolved issues, as there were, like you know whether to raise the, you know, the top rate of income tax, uh, for example, which finally he and uh, Tony resolved, but pretty near uh, to the election. Yeah. But whatever, there was a sort of organisational rivalry and competing going on uh, the whole time. Um, you know, Gordon's. Charlie Whedon thought he was in charge, Tony Blair's Alistair Campbell thought he was in charge, and that got replicated right across uh, each function of the team. So it wasn't really very happy. Now, I remember on the day that John Major went to the palace, we were in Millbank, Tony called a meeting of me, uh, Alistair, Gordon, I can't remember who Gordon brought along, probably Ed Balls and uh, Charlie Whelan. And he said, I'm not going to have this any longer. You've got to talk to each other. Gordon, you've got to talk to Peter uh, about the campaign. You've got to sign off you know, the, all the planning and the ideas and the proposals that have been put together. Um, and Gordon sort of, sort of grunted and said, I'll see Peter, <laughs> I'll see Peter after, uh, which I think he probably did. And did things change or not no. really? No. <laughs> they didn't, but you know, it's odd because they were two such brilliant people that as long as you found a way to sort of mediate and to sort of get the best of both of them and when necessary get them to talk to each other, you really did get more than the sum total of the parts. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, they, they added to each other they enhanced each other's uh, capabilities uh, 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 and skills so that even when it wasn't working well, which indeed it wasn't most of the time, it was you were getting more value from it. What was coming out at the end was better, still better. Than yeah. you would have from you know, a, a comparable team either within your party or in the amongst the Conservatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Where did the, I wanted to ask, where did Things Can Only Get Better come from? Oh, that would have come from Philip Gould's people, and I'm sure. I, I don't know exactly. Was it a sort of, did you think we'll use this once and then it became the, was it a deliberate attempt to make it become sort of the anthem of the campaign? No, we needed, we wanted a yeah, you wanted a song. A song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we always like songs. <laughs> um, and... Uh, that was the one that was chosen, not my speciality. I had not a clue of what song or what piece of music to have. You know, I would just look at the words. I'd probably get a note from Philip Gould. You know, here are three options. Please indicate which you like. And he would have sent that round to half a dozen people. Um, things can only get better. I wouldn't have had a clue uh, who was singing it or performing it. I'd have just liked the message. Yeah. And now it's amazing, it's now it's sort of played at Labour things as an act of defiance. Of course, but the, but, but the whole manifesto, yeah. I mean, the whole sort of, you know, the sort of rubric of the whole campaign where things can only get better. Yeah, it, it was a perfect fit. And it would have come from the research. Yeah. It would have come from Philip's research. Everything was <laughs> everything was so carefully focused, grouped it and was, polled. It was, as they say, a research-led campaign. Absolutely right. I just want to ask you about the... The, the the last day of the campaign, the election itself, and how you felt on that. Um, what did you do? Because you, you were you were standing for election, so you were yes, presumably you standing were in, in, your, in your constituency and of course yes. uh, knocking up and that sort of thing. But then only at the end, yeah, I did. I went once a week to Hartlepool. Yeah, uh, I had a brilliant team there who minded my backyard and covered my back, and they were brilliant. Uh, but it was very, very useful because, well, honestly, I, you may not believe this, but I've never been to a focus group in my life. Wow. Literally. Uh, I mean, Philip, Alistair and others were addicted to them. I wasn't. Uh, I don't quite know why, uh, but I never found the time. And anyway, there was never the need, partly because the readout that you got from Philip Gould uh, was always perfect and instantaneous and you didn't really have to go in order to read his piece and feel that you had been there. But what I always found about focus groups is that they confirmed or reinforced uh, or emphasized something I already felt. Yeah. So I didn't feel that I was getting anything new but they were really, really useful because they would reinforce something. I always wondered whether they reinforced what Philip felt or wanted us to think. Um, <laughs> there was always a remarkable similarity between what Philip had been arguing for and, and then what the focus the group said. Focus <laughs> um, but that was fine. If I agreed with it, I didn't mind. If yeah. I disagreed with it, uh, then, you know, I would just push back a bit. And so on election night, you probably got your result in Hartlepool. Where did you go then? Did you go straight to the World Festival Hall? I flew down. Uh, again, actually, funnily enough, with my friend Robert Harris, okay. who by this time was writing for the Sunday Times. He was writing uh, many election pieces, writing about the whole Labour campaign. He was with Tony halfway through it and wrote a series of brilliant pieces in the Sunday Times about the campaign. Uh, but he uh, was with me in Hartlepool that night because he had been with Tony in the neighbouring constituency of Sedgefield during yeah. the day. Uh, and we flew down in a private plane. Uh, and as we flew down, actually quite near to ground level, listened to the radio and heard the announcement of all these 
amazing seats that were falling like dominoes uh, from the Tories, you know, along the south coast of England, and just n suddenly there really were no no go areas <laughs> for, for Labour or for or, or for New Labour. And when we got back to London, uh, we went to uh, the South Bank, and I uh, just fell in with the rest of the crowd. I think I had. Neil Kinnock standing to one side of me, John Prescott to the other, and then Tony arrived with Cherie and he sort of worked his way down uh, through the crowd of campaign uh, workers, shouting everyone, just cheering him to the echo, shaking hands. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. And how, how did you feel that was it, having worked so relieved. hard on the campaign? Relieved, I felt. Yeah. <laughs> was a part of you that it was a, had you thought before about the reality of winning and what that might mean, or was it all just focused on the campaign? For me, it was focused pretty much yeah. on the campaign. Others were working on entering government. Uh, Jonathan Powell, Tony's chief of staff, was doing that in particular. David Miliband, head of policy, was doing that. There are a number of others who were working on transition. Uh, I, I was pretty much entirely focused on... Make sure you got there. <laughs> you got there the first place. Tony Blair's famous claim that his mission would be complete when... The Labour Party loved Peter Madison. What we said, he was being interviewed for a magazine, but I can't remember the magazine or who. He interviewed. <laughs> I thought I thought I've made a note that it was ninety six. Do you think? Do you think he ever got there? There was a, there was a time when the party seemed to. Well, what would happen is I would sort of go up and up and up, and then suddenly, you know, my legs would get chopped off, usually by people within my own party, and then I would sort of sink sink back again, and then I'd have to work my way up. Uh, a, a bit further, and then some other sort of, you know, thunderbolt would 
strike me, usually from our next door neighbour, uh, <laughs> in Downing Street, uh, and then I'd sort of mm, sink back again. But then the extraordinary scene of you then returning to government with Gordon. That was absolutely remarkable. It was unplanned, unexpected, unanticipated. Um, uh, it, <laughs> I mean, you know, Gordon getting choosing his nemesis, as many people saw me, uh, you know, to save him. Uh, and it, it is odd because I still to this day have people on the Blairite side of the party unforgiving towards me. Really? I, I, I know it is absolutely amazing and I can hardly believe it because, you know, heaven knows I went in, the banking crisis was bringing the country yeah. and our economy to its knees. Uh, we were heading fast over a cliff. The idea that you wouldn't return to government when asked to do so by the Prime Minister, even though for me it meant leaving a job I loved as Trade Commissioner yeah. for, for Europe. and. Uh, there was you know, a whole series of things that I was immersed in which I wanted to see finished. But when the call came, you had no alternative. It, I didn't really think twice. Well, I, actually, I did think twice because I went over to Tony's office and asked him what he felt. But by the time I reached Tony's office from number 10, Gordon had phoned ahead of me and told Tony that I had to come back and that he shouldn't discourage me and that he should say I should do it. And when I, so I arrived at Tony's office 15 minutes later, he'd already received the call. He said, Gordon's just uh, telephoned and I'm to tell you that you've got to do this. And actually I think you have to because you know, when the Prime Minister asks you to do something for the country, you can't say no. So I did, but there are a lot of other people who by then remember a year into t uh, Gordon's premiership had just despaired of him. I mean, a lot of the cabinet uh, wanted him to go. Uh, they couldn't see uh, how his situation would be retrieved. I mean, he was just banging along on the just the bottom of the, yeah. in uh, in the opinion polls, and they they said, you know, they just saw me as coming in to save Gordon rather than coming in to do something for the country, uh, and uh, I didn't realise it at the time. I subsequently learned that they uh, were very dischaffed what I had done. They thought that I had sort of almost let the side down. <laughs> um, and one or two of them, still to this day, I could name them, I won't, uh, uh, look at me askance uh, and say that if it hadn't been for me, uh, then Gordon could have been replaced uh, by uh, an alternative prime minister and we would have won the election in 2010. I'm not so sure about that, but anyway, if that is true, you know, it, it, it's a balanced, it's a nuanced thing, and if you want a fuller account uh, of what happened in the run-up to the 2010 election, you'll need to read my memoir, The Third Man, which is still available in all good bookshops absolutely and on right. Amazon. Absolutely right. Um, we can't discuss two decades on from New Labour entering government and uh, a decade on since Gordon Brown became Prime Minister without reflecting on where the Labour Party is now. I mean, it seems like a, another world, the Labour Party now. Of course now. it's another world, yes. <laughs> do you think there's, do you have any confidence of it coming back? Do you think we'll ever see a sort of landslide, Labour landslide again? Or Oh, you won't see that for a long time. The question is, can the Labour Party get a foothold, a toehold in government again? And the answer is, of course, it can. 
but not under this leader, I mean, not under this regime, uh, who, whose pri first priority is not actually winning elections. It's not parliament, it's not social democracy. They have a rather ambivalent attitude towards elections and the sort of parliamentary road. You know, their mission is a different one. It's to create a movement for socialism in the country that in the end will ferment a sort of state of revolutionary consciousness and abracadabra will suddenly, you know, wake up and find we have socialism. Um, it's all completely irrelevant to the Labour Party and to what we stand for and, uh, and what we're seeking uh, to do electorally, which is why Labour voters up and down the country are in despair. They don't think that current leadership of the Labour Party understands them, represents them, can possibly speak about their lives. They think their head is somewhere way up in some cloud formation somewhere <laughs> and possibly on another planet. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it's it, the situation is insoluble whilst the current leadership continues. How much damage do you think, talking about marketing and branding and that sort of, how much damage is it doing to the Labour brand oh, huge the longer damage. he stays there? Of course there. it's yeah. doing huge damage. But my own feeling at the moment is that we would almost be better putting up with him for a while longer uh, until an alternative emerges. I'm not sure that we do have quite the alternative leader who has yet emerged from the ranks. I think there are a whole number of people who have that potential, but I don't think they've come through yet. I think that will happen, but I don't think it's fallen into place yet, uh, and therefore uh, it would be as well to wait, I think, for a while longer. And if somebody came to you and said, Peter, you know, you know how to rebrand a party and put it in a new place, I want to launch a whole new political party, capturing the centre ground, would you get involved in that? But a whole new a whole party, new a whole new party. party, yeah. Would you get involved in a new centrist party? I can't see the circumstances in which I would do that. Yeah. Is that because the maths just doesn't work? You know, law, with a parliamentary democracy, it's quite difficult launching a whole new party. Well, technically that's the case, but it's also the fact that I'm a Labour man. Yeah. Um, you know, I was born into the Labour Party. My grandfather, my mother's father, was one of the founders or builders of the Labour Party. He was the first um, general secretary of the Labour Party in London. He became the first elected Labour leader of the London County Council uh, and then of course as we know chaired and organised the election in 1945 and became Attlee's Deputy Prime Minister so I'm steeped in it and I can't really see myself parting company from it but you know politics is in flux uh, at the moment. Brexit, Europe, Britain's f future, I mean something deeply deeply existential now hangs over uh, Britain's future. I don't just mean our economy, which is uh, a central part of it, but the very existence of the United Kingdom, our place in the world, you know, our ability not just to make our living, but to exercise influence yeah. uh, across the world. All this is at stake. And in my view, uh, in the current Brexit negotiations, uh, is hanging like a thread. It, it may be that over the next few years something emerges uh, from that flux so that people really do feel they have to come together for the sake of the country. So that something really central about our national interest is at stake. And then you will find people breaking free of party allegiances and coming together 
on that issue or for that cause. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the same as creating a new political party, certainly not at the outset. Yeah. Peter Madison, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Boxes series, Lessons in a Landslide. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes using iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning Red Box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.